Hello, and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. You guys know Josh Chalker. He is on our student ministry team here. And uh, he has communicated, obviously, on Wednesday nights, but he has not had a chance to preach on Sunday. So you're going you're gonna to hear from Josh and see his passion and his fire right from the get-go. He also, we have right beside him is Creighton Appleberry, and uh, Creighton, he is in seventh grade, and Creighton attends our student ministry on Wednesday nights, and he, his family is friends with our family. Him and my son Maddox are close friends, and uh, they're at each other's house uh, at least twice a month. You know, they're hanging out all the time, and so a couple, I don't know if it was a year ago, something like that, two years ago, his mom said, Creighton feels a call to be a youth pastor, and I said, well, one of these days... We're going to be doing Young Communicators. We planned on doing it earlier in the year, and then this crazy thing called COVID hit, and so we kind of pushed pause, and I thought, man, are we going to do that? And uh, we put that together, and so Creighton's one of them. Beside him, we have Cody Lewis. He is also on our student ministry team and uh, married to my daughter. And uh, so anyway, so um, today I'm going to judge him when he preaches. But anyway, <laughs> beside, beside no, they, he, we love them, and they're doing a great job with our students and just a passion for them. Beside Cody, we have our lone female on the stage. And uh, could you guys give it up for Emma today? Emma is going to do a great job. And uh, Emma is in high school and she has a passion. And I found out a few weeks ago at our youth conference that she feels a call to ministry and she's been work. She works faithfully every Sunday back in kids. And so we wanted to give her a shot. And then we have my son, Makai Blancett. He's going to be sharing with you guys today. Mackay's a junior in high school. He has had a call of God on his life, I think pretty much his whole life. But uh, when he was two years old, he was standing on our ottoman preaching in our living room. And then we went to my parents' church to visit. One weekend, I was preaching there. Mackay was in the class, and we got Tasha went to pick him up, and they said he stood on whatever he could stand on and preach. It kind of reminded me of like Martin Luther, stood on a box in the middle of a city and declared he had a dream. But anyway, if you don't remember that line from a song, you're not very old. All right, then we have Anthony Wilkerson. He's on our team here at the church. And... Uh, Anthony's going to do a great job for you, um, love his family, and Anthony is not in high school, but anyway, so, um, and then we have Andrew Penny as well, and this one I'm excited about, Andrew has, I feel like the Lord has been asking him to do something, he's been working back in kids, Andrew is a junior in high school as well, and uh, watched him play football, stud offensive lineman for Republic, I think he's going to do a great job there at Republic, but also Andrew, his parents helped us plant the church, and so they've been with us since the beginning of this church starting, and so that is our panel, seven minutes starts now, Josh Chalker, you're up, let's go, you, start Don't now. start yet, don't start yet, hold on, I got to get up here, hold on, oh, it's starting we got to get going, y'all. Here's the deal. I'm used to preaching like 25, 30 minutes. I got seven, which means I got a lot of message to get into. Y'all ready for this? Because I'm ready for this, y'all. So here's the deal. Pastor Chad texted us, and he's like, uh, he, he invited us to speak. He told us about underdogs. And, and, and I'm thinking, who is an underdog in Scripture that I could preach on that everybody at Destiny Church would relate to? And I'm like, mm, I'm thinking, I'm praying through it. I'm like, I got it. Rahab the prostitute. Come on. Come on, it's going to be good, but hey, Lord willing, Lord willing, y'all don't relate in that way, right? Come on, come on. But I'm, I, I'm sure we can all agree that at some point in our lives, whether it's right now, 
Whether it's in the past, we can all agree that at some point we were somebody we didn't want to be. We, we, we were living in a way that we didn't want to live. We were doing things we, we weren't proud of. And Rahab was in the same boat. She made a living off doing that thing. That's, that's a joke. Y'all are supposed to laugh at that, but it's fine. <laughs> but, man, here's the deal. Rahab made a living off doing something that was not good. And I guarantee you she thought, man, there's no way that God can use me through this. And, and, and I'm sure there's somebody in here this morning that, that's battling that same thought process. Man, there's no way that God can use me based off the sin that I'm entangled with, based off what my past life used to look like. But I want to encourage you. Rahab went from underdog to overcomer, and God has the same plan for you. We're going to dive into Joshua 2, verses 11 through 14. Don't put it up there yet, because before we do that, I want to give you all some background as to where we're at in our story. i got five minutes. i got to get going. So here's the deal. Rahab lived in Jericho, right? And Joshua, great name, by the way, Joshua sent two spies into the city of Jericho to go and spy on the land because they wanted to overcome the land, right? We all know that story. But when they come into Jericho, they get to the house of Rahab, and they're like, yo, can we come in? And Rahab says, Yes. Keep that in mind. That's important. Rahab says yes. And, and the king finds out that, that the spies are there, right? So, so they send guards to, to uh, Rahab's house. Like, yo, where are they at? Where they go? And Rahab hid them. Come on. Thank you, Rahab. But the spies are hiding. And, and Rahab's like, they're not here. They left. They left. Got to go chase after them. Dang, I got four minutes. I got to keep going. You got to chase after them. They're going. They're, they're gone. And the guards go. They go chase after somebody that didn't ever leave. And, and, and here's where we get into our story. And, and we could toss a scripture up there, but before I say this, man, here's my heart. Here's what I want you to receive this morning. Our yes prepares us for his promise. Our yes prepares us for his promise. We don't got it up there? No worries. I'll just read it from my Bible because my Bible's got it. Ready? Verse 11. This is a conversation with Rahab and the spies. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Man, praise God. That's Rahab saying yes to Jesus. Remember that. She said yes. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Verse 14, our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us our land. Our yes, my yes, your yes, prepares you, prepares me, prepares us for the promise that God has for us. Rahab's yes led to salvation in her own soul, praise the Lord. Your yes... And that's God's desires. Your yes would lead to salvation of your own soul. That's God's desire. Say your yes. You would say yes. You would say yes to all the things that God has planned for you. That you would go from underdog to overcomer. Rahab's yes delivered a nation into the hands of Joshua. Again, great name. Rahab's yes saved the lives of her family. And the greatest of them all, Rahab's yes, prepared her for the promise that God had on her life. And that was to be put into the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And hear me out. 
You may be in here, you may be thinking, there's no chance that God has a plan for me. Josh, I've done too many things in my life. (laughs) There's no chance. I'm not qualified to do things for God. Let me encourage you. Jeremiah 29, 11, I'm sure we probably all heard it. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to fail you, plans to give you a hope and a future church. Do you hear me? God's got a plan for your life to take you from underdog to overcomer. Does that excite you? It excites me. My yes qualifies me to what God has in store. Nothing else. Nothing else. Your yes is what qualifies you. The work of God in our hearts is what qualifies you. God doesn't care if you're a prostitute, a drug dealer, a sinner, a cheater, a doctor, a student, an adult, an athlete, a a kid. He doesn't care. God desires your yes. We're about to hear six other people talk about six people in Scripture that said yes to what God has for their life. And when God comes to you and, and, and gives you something, and you say yes, and, and, and we see it in Scripture, when they say yes, history's changed forever. I'm curious, who in this room is going to say yes and see history changed forever? I believe maybe one of y'all students, maybe one of our first through fifth graders are going to say yes to what God has, and we're going to see history change forever. Maybe one of the people on the panel I want to challenge you this morning. This message is not condemnation. This is not me calling you, calling you out for sin. This is me encouraging you and challenging you that God has more in store for you. Come on. I got 10 seconds, so we're just going to wait here. And I'm just going to say this, man. God has a plan for my life, for their life, but for y'all's life. For everybody on the sound of my voice, he has a plan and a promise for you. Ding, 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 ding. Hello, my name's Creighton Appleberry, and today I'm going to be talking to you about the book of Daniel and how Daniel became an overcomer. First, I would like to start off with a prayer before we. Jesus, I just ask you, please, to give me the words to just let me say what you want me to say, Lord. And please, I just hope that everybody understands what I'm trying to say, and that's all I ask from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So first, who is Daniel? Daniel, he came from the land of Judah to Babylon to work under the, to learn to work under the king. And came with him was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, they, why they got chose by King uh, Nebuchadnezzar was they were smart, intelligent, and gifted. So I'm going to be talking to you about three different things from the book of Daniel. The first thing is Daniel had to interpret a dream or he was going to die, or he was going to get killed. So King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and everybody else, nobody could uh, interpret the dream or tell him what his dream was. So uh, Daniel went to the king and said, I want to tell you what your dream was and interpret it for you. So he uh, did that with the power of prayer from God. So the second thing is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into a fiery furnace. 
because uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot tall, 90-foot tall, 9-foot wide statue made of gold, and whenever you heard a siren or like a sound, a musical instrument, you had to get down on your knees and pray to this idol or God. And when that happened, nobody did, or not nobody, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't do that because they only pray to the one and only real God. So uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with them. So he had them thrown into a fiery furnace that was seven times hotter than usual. He was so mad at them that when the people threw the people that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they ended up dying. It was so hot. So uh, King Nebuchadnezzar got to a point where he can see in the furnace, and uh, he saw four people walking around inside. He said it looked like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the uh, land, er, the son of God of the gods. So he had them come out, and he was wondering how they didn't have a scratch, a burn, a mark, absolutely nothing. So uh, they said, uh, the son of God was in there with us, protecting us through this. And the last thing is with Daniel. And uh, he grew powerful with the new king, King Darius. So he... uh, he grew powerful, and everybody else that was below him, they wanted him dead. They wanted his spot. They were jealous of him. So they uh, had King Darius make a law, or they conned him in making a law where you couldn't pray to any other god except King Darius because they knew that Daniel prayed to God every single day. So uh, when King Darius figured out that he didn't pray to him, then he was mad at him, so he had him thrown into the lion's den. And uh, he had a boulder put in front of it, and the next day he was curious on what happened. So he went to it, he had the boulder removed, and he yelled inside, Daniel! Daniel came out, walked out perfectly fine. He He was shocked. He didn't know what to say. He was wondering how he didn't get hurt. And Daniel said, God sent an angel over the alliance to protect, to shut their mouths and make them sleep the whole time to protect me. So if God is able to protect you through uh, basically being threatened to death, if he can protect you through being thrown into a furnace, if he can protect you through uh, being thrown into a lion's then he can help you with anything today. He's the same today as he was back in Daniel's days when he was born. He can help you with anything, addictions, marriage problems, financial problems, health problems, anything, you name it, he can help you with it. And uh, even if the result seems impossible, He can help you with anything today as long as you believe in him and confess that he is God and your king. Thank you, and I hope that this did something in your life. Open my notes here. Okay, I'm going to go fast. Okay, I'm going to be talking about Deborah this Sunday morning, and we're going to be looking in Judges 4 and 5, and it talks about a violent and fearful time in Israel's history. The people of Israel had turned their backs on God, so the Lord turned them over to king of Canaan, Jabin. 
the Israelites were surrounded by sin and evil in the land that they lived in. Even the highways, the roads that led to Canaan, were completely abandoned because the travelers would rather take winding back roads than to have to travel down these roads that, land to, that, f- that led to a land full of sin and hatred. Villagers in Israel would not fight for their land that God gave to them because they were so consumed with fear from the king's general, Sisera. Judges 4.3 says, The Israelites begged God to help them because he had 900 chariots with iron-rimmed wheels, and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Enter Deborah. Deborah was a prophetess, meaning a woman who was a prophet. She was the fourth judge and the only female judge mentioned in the Bible. The Israelites would come to her under the palm tree and have their disputes settled. This means that the Israelites, the villagers, would come to Deborah, who was basically a counselor to these people, and they would come to her, tell her their disputes, and she would help them with them. She summoned the warrior Barak and commanded him to gather an army of 10,000 Israelite soldiers to confront Sisera. Barak gave in to his fears, just like all the other Israelites, and couldn't do what God, through Deborah, was telling him to do. He didn't exactly run from God, though. Instead, he told Deborah, if you go, I'll go. If you don't, I won't. Until now, everyone had held back until Deborah rose up. The story goes on to say that Deborah agrees to accompany Barak. She prophesied that God would deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Together with their army, they climb Mount Tabor. Confident in God's promise, when they arrive at the top, she says to Barak, What are you waiting for? Get going. The Israelites defeated Sisera, making him flee on foot, sending him right into the tent of a woman named Yale. She lures him in. She lures him in, she lulls him to sleep with milk, and she drives a tent peg through his head. The whole time I was reading this, I was just thinking, you know, good thing I'm not a big fan of milk because that is crazy. (laughs) After this had happened, this had obviously bring Deborah's story full circle. A woman had definitely defeated Sisera. Deborah is one of the few women in the Bible mentioned by name. She's only the only woman to step she's also one of the only women to step into a leadership role. Being a woman and living in captivity, that could have been enough for Deborah to quiet God's voice. By all accounts, she wasn't qualified, but she rose up above what others might have thought about her and she answered God's call. Deborah was willing to say things that made others uncomfortable and made decisions that required courage. She didn't question God's voice or wondered what others would think or say. She didn't care if people followed her or not. She simply had faith to do what God told her to do. We learn something about Deborah in the moment at the top of the mountain. She doesn't go down to battle with Barak and the rest of the army. She wasn't a commander. Her role was to prophesy and counsel the people, and in Barak's case, give him the courage to do what God asked of him. She knew the work that she was called to do. I know that I personally can apply this to my life because I've seen God move in me, my friends, and in my family. He knows the work that everyone is called to do, just like Deborah and Barak and the army of the Israelites. Just how God called Deborah to instruct Barak to lead the army at Mount Tabor. As some of you probably know, like Chad said earlier, I help back on Sundays, and I know that God has led me to minister those kids. And a few Sundays ago, before school had started, we asked them if they were scared for school starting the next day. A lot of them said they were scared because they haven't seen their friends in so long and because of COVID and how it might seem a lot different than their past years. After this, we began altar time, and a lot of us leaders stood at the front, leaders like me and the other teams in that class. And in case any of the kids wanted to come pray with us, we stood at the front for them during altar time. 
For a little while, no kids went up to the altar, but eventually I watched two little girls come to the front, and they stood beside me, and they said, Emma, can I pray with you? And because of these two little kids, this crowd, all of the other kids back there said, started piling up to the altars to pray with the other leaders too. In Israel, a lot of the villagers were scared to go to battle because they saw the chariots, and they saw how many men were on Sisera's side. Even Barak was scared to go, even if God had instructed him to. But through Deborah, doing what God had told her to, they won. So just like the kids on service Sunday, whom I had felt scared to go up to the altar, but then saw two girls who came to pray because God knew, they knew God would help them overcome their fears, everyone else followed them. We can apply this to our lives too. If two little kids can cause the rest of the crowd to follow, so can you. We all have weaknesses or fears like Barak or the nation of Israel. We all have questions or qualifications. We all have, at some point, probably questioned God if he made a mistake and called the wrong person for the job. But we can have the same strength and confidence that Deborah had. Trust God has already gone before you and paved a way, and that he's made us more than capable of the things he's called us to. Are you going to stand at the sidelines like the rest of the Israelites, or are you going to have faith like Deborah had in God and lead a crowd to fulfill what God has called you to do? All right, so when Chad texted us, I was like, man, who should I pick? So I was thinking David, taken. And I'm like, ooh, Gideon, taken. (laughs) So then I looked into Genesis 6, and I found Noah. And a lot of people, most of us have heard about Noah when we were kids. Noah, he built an ark, survived a flood, brought two two of every animal. But there's a lot of things in the book of Genesis that people don't talk about. So, we'll start in Genesis chapter 6. And as mankind grows more, they stray further away from God. To the point where there's only one person left who's faithful in the Lord. His name was Noah. And I don't know if you guys remember, because some of you might be a little old, looking at you, Dad. (laughs) But... If you guys remember high school, sitting alone at a lunch table, it's horrible. (laughs) Like, it's hard to be faithful with the Lord when you're alone. Like, not even Peter, who literally walked with Jesus, could do it. He denied Jesus three times in one night when he was alone. So it's hard. And another thing is, When you're the only person, not a lot of people are going to like you. Uh, Oh, boy. Imagine being the only team in any sports team. Imagine being the only team to have a really good record. Imagine how all the other teams are going to feel. They're going to look, and they're not going to like you because you beat them. But there's another part of it. God has a plan, no matter how hard it is. For Noah, God's plan was for him to make the ark. And now, everyone knows the ark, big wooden boat, two of every animal. People don't realize how massive it was. I have it written here. The ark, it was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide and 45 feet tall. Today's measurements, 
that's not very big. But this thing took 120 years to make by a man who was already 480. <laughs> Almost as old as my dad. <laughs> yeah, it put this into scale. The United States Navy, a Knox-class frigate, this is massive, used to guide big aircraft carriers across large plains of water. It is only 438 feet long and requires entire teams of scientists and mechanics to make. An old man in 120 years, all wood. Imagine trying to get that thing to float. I struggle with like a little wooden board in a pond. But God will lift up anyone who chooses to serve him. And as it says here in Luke 17, 26, let it be the same as it was in the days of Noah, as it will be in the days of Christ. I believe that people in this room, whether it be some of our new first graders and kids, to Doug Kramer here, who's been preaching for so long. Have you guys heard his story? He's so good at telling it. I love it. Uh, no, it's just my dad. <laughs> and this brings me to the last part. When we're walking what feels like we're by ourselves, you could be sitting alone, deny Jesus three times in one night. You could be the only person in the world. You're not alone. For Noah, he had God. He had his family. And that's all you need. He has God and his family. So what does he have to fear? As it says in 2 Timothy 1.7, we are not meant to live lives of timidity, but lives of love, power, and self-control. And even if you need a little more than God to support you through, you have families. And family doesn't have to be blood-related. Like, I can look at people in kids team. I consider them family. People that will coach me, tell me what I'm doing wrong, help me out in my life. No, he had his wife and three sons. I don't know if they helped him build the boat. Don't know. But comely, come 120 years later after starting to build the boat. No, he built this in the middle. Okay, you guys know where the Middle East is, right? Yeah, okay. I don't associate water with that area. He built a massive boat in the middle of the Middle East. For 120 years. But come 120 years, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Everyone is wiped out, except for Noah, who maintained his faith in the Lord. And it sounds like a lot of swimming. Like, I normally associate myself with being able to swim. But I looked it up. You have to swim for 150 days straight to survive that flood. And fast forward, God made a promise with Noah. To, he made a covenant with Noah that his family would multiply. And that one day... 
Oh boy, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> and that one day we would all be saved and be able to go to heaven. And that's about all I got. Hey, what's up, DC? Hey. Uh, as you guys have heard from the four people before me, uh, my dad had just recently asked us to all speak on this Sunday about underdogs to overcomers. He asked us all to choose individually a Bible character from the Old Testament and speak on them and relate it to being an underdog to an overcomer. So for me, I wanted to choose somebody that I like, I loved listening to when I grew up. I figured all you guys would have heard the story many times. And for me, I wanted to choose Gideon. Gideon and the Israelites, Gideon and the 300, as most of you guys know. But um, to start off, let me give you guys some background on this story so that we can get started. So if you guys will all take a look at Judges 6, we can see that the Israelites were being constantly oppressed by the Midianites. Israel was reduced to starvation, and they cried out to the Lord for help many times. In reality, there was no possible way they, they were ever going to succeed in beating the Midianites. It was under these circumstances that God spoke to Gideon, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. So you have to wonder, though, as Gideon was looking over his shoulder, God, are you talking to me? Because he was not qualified at all. I say this because later God says to Gideon, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. But God reassures Gideon time and time again, I will be with you, and you shall destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Right now, I can imagine Gideon is terrified. God just asked him to fight against an army like three times the size of his own. There's 135,000 Midianites and only 32,000 uh, Israelites. But he could have given up at the moment, but he decided to stay, stay strong to God's word and keep listening to him. So if we look back at Judges 7, verse 5 we see that Gideon took his warriors down to the water. The Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all of those who cup the water in their hands and lap it up like a dog. And in the other group, put all of those who kneel down and drink it with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 men drank from the water in the stream by lapping it up in their hands like a dog. All the others got down on their knees and drank from the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you the victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. See, if I was Gideon, I'd be like, God, come on, first, first you put me in charge of the army, okay? Like, I have no experience. I've never been in war and combat. And then you're going to take away about, like, all of my men. I have 300 left to face 135,000. I don't think that's going to work out too much. But Gideon, once again, he didn't give up. Instead, he divided the men into three groups. And gave each man a ram's horn, a clay jar, and with a torch in it. Then he said, keep your eyes on me, because when I go to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those around me blow the ram's horn, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp, and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Just after midnight, they began the attack, and they blew their ram's horns, broke the jars, and they held their blazing torches in their left hand and their swords in their right. All of them shouted, a sword for Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as the Midianites rushed around in panic. When they blew their horns, the Lord caused all of the Midianite warriors 
to turn against each other and start slaying their own men. And Gideon, the untrained and clueless nobody that God chose, he had a victory over the Midianites, a group about 10 times the size of his own. Actually, a lot more than that, but, you know. So as I read this story, it kind of puts some reassurance and some hope into my own heart that I don't have to be somebody profound and great for God to choose me. God chose Gideon, and he was the lowest of the low. He was the lowest in his family. He was the lowest in his nation, and God chose him. God does not choose the obvious, but he chooses the the underdogs and gives them the opportunity to be overcomers. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just make you an overcomer, and I think that's what we all need to understand. He gives us the chance, and he doesn't make it easy. And we can't expect him to do it on his own. We have to put some skin in the game. And when God gives us the opportunity to help him, we must be willing to sacrifice everything we have to gain everything. Today, as I finish up, I want to give you guys five quick points um, from, to go to an underdog to an overcomer. So number one, start over new. As we saw in Judges, Gideon was a nobody, but he didn't let his appearance or his past failures affect him. Philippians 3.13 says, One thing I do is forgetting those things which are behind and reaching those in front of me. And I think that's what a lot of us need to do. We need to stop focusing on what our past is and what we've done in the past, and we need to ask for forgiveness, and we need to start over. So number two, we need to decide to make a change. To truly overcome something in life, we have to be serious about it. We can't be half-hearted and give no effort, or as my dad talks recently about, we can't sit on top of the fence post. We have to be on one side or the other. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit to the Lord, and you will succeed in everything you do. Although, to truly commit to the Lord and make a change, we must put a boundary of protection around us, and we must take specific action to overcome sin. So number three, hide God's word in our heart. Now, for me, I understand that this is the one that a lot of us really try and skip, Because when we skip this step, we're losing the power that is available to us in God's word. But we try and manage our way around it because we don't want to put in the time. When we are willing to hide God's word into our heart, we must start reading scripture that speak to areas of our life where we struggle so that we can change ourselves and be more uh, useful to God. Number four, uh, overcome one day at a time and you will begin a streak. So once you, one day at a time, you will begin to put together a string of victories that will be very encouraging to you. There will be a soon, a soon point where you truly will be able to say, by God's help, I am overcoming. Number five, as I close, celebrate your victories, guys. Celebrate your achievements and thank God for all that he has given you to succeed. He made it possible for you to defeat the haunting army that's been standing in front of you. He made it possible for you to move the mountains. He made it possible to defeat Goliath. But even when it seems like you are going to lose, rely on God, and he will give you the chance to be an overcomer. Thank you, guys. All right, man, this is tough to follow. These guys are good. Holy cow. Well, today we're talking about underdogs. And the story I want to look at today is really, I would consider the underdog story of underdog stories. In fact, this story has become synonymous when we have a competitor or an opponent who is severely outmatched by another. What do we call that? We call it a David versus a Goliath. And that's the story I want to look at today is the story of David and Goliath. And in looking at this story, I want to look at how David was able to overcome his giant because then we can apply those same principles in our lives to overcome 
our giants. Because let's be honest, we fight battles every single day, and some of those battles are giants. Some of them we feel like the underdog in our life because we don't think there's any chance that we can overcome this giant. So if you look at the story, it's found in 1 Samuel. If you don't know where 1 Samuel is in your Bible, take your Bible, open in the middle. You'll be in Psalms. Go back 10 books. Super easy. <laughs> Super easy to find. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 33. It says, Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. What's Saul just tell David? You're the underdog. There is not a chance you're going to win this fight. You do not. Stand a chance. Look at David's reply, verse 36 and 37. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, catch this, the Lord who delivered me from the, hand of, or from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Point number one is this. God will give you the skills necessary to overcome your giants. What was David? He was a shepherd. How did he defeat the lion and the bear? The exact same way he's going to defeat the giant. He used his sling. God had been giving him the skills from his day-to-day battles. The battles he faced every single day as a shepherd, he is now using those same skills to overcome his giant. God will give you the skills necessary to overcome your giant. Number two is this. God will give you the tools necessary to overcome your giant. Jump down to verse 40. It says, he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Key word in here, five smooth stones. Notice, David didn't just bend down and pick up any five rocks. There was nothing David could put together or make on his own that would help him defeat the giant. No, he had to go get five smooth stones from the brook where the water had been rushing over the stone, forming it as if it was God's hand going, this is the stone I'm preparing for David to defeat Goliath. You see, God will give you the tools necessary to overcome your giant. For you, it's not going to be a stone. But it might be the words of a pastor on a Sunday morning giving the words you need to hear. It might be the encouraging words and a hug from a friend. It might be the faith-filled prayers of an intercessor praying on your behalf that you don't even know is going on. Or, you know what else it might be? That scripture you read six months ago in your daily reading that didn't have any meaning for you then, has, God has brought back into your mind because you need it now to overcome your giant. You see, God will give you the tools necessary to overcome your giants. But these two points, these two points, they hinge on one other very critical detail in David's story. What does scripture call David? It calls him a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Was David perfect? Whew, far from it. We're talking about a guy who steals another man's wife, then has the man murdered so he could have this woman as his wife. So let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about this? How could a man who has committed murder, committed adultery, how could a man who's committed such an egregious sin be considered a man after God's own heart? How is that even possible? Well, the details are in this story. We see it in David's actions and in his words. 
David was a man after God's own heart because he understood the power and presence of God in his life. It's about relationship. It's relationship first. If you don't have the power and presence of God in your life, how do you expect to use the tools and the skills he's going to give you? It has to start with the relationship. It has to start there. But here's the deal. When you are tapped in to the power and presence of God in your life, you may feel like the underdog. You may feel like the underdog of your life, and you're facing a battle that you can't win. It might be, it might be the final notice on a shutoff bill. It might be marriage problems. It might be, who knows, it could be a defiant teenager screaming in your face telling you you're the worst parent in the world and they hate you. We all face giants. We all face giants. Maybe it's a diagnosis from a doctor. Whatever it is, whatever giant you're facing, you may feel like the underdog. But if you have the power and the presence of God in your life and you are using the skills and the tools that he has prepared for you, you're not the underdog. You're not the underdog. In fact, you're the giant. But here's the deal. Giants can be defeated, right? Goliath was defeated. But if you're using the power and presence of God in your life and using the skills and the tools that he has prepared for you, you are a giant that can never be defeated. So I'm going to close out things here. Um, I will have to say I love speaking in front of students way more because I can tell, like, how they're responding. It's either... I'm so ready to be out of here. I was at school all day. Or, hey, this is really good. But adults is just, and I'm like, they might be really engaged in God speaking to them. Or it's like, this is the routine. So that's the thing that I notice about that. But I'm really excited to get into the word and close this powerful Sunday out. Um, But when I was thinking about underdogs, what came to my mind was, I don't like underdogs. I, I I don't think it's fair. I had a lot of questions come to my heart of why an underdog, they're not the deserving person. They don't deserve to win. They, it's by luck that they're even there. And two questions came to my mind. Of first, why did God not use the expected person? It might have even been a person in God's will, but why did he not use the equipped person? And the second question is, Why in our culture do we cheer so hard and make headlines for underdogs, but we would never dare step in their shoes? We would really like to cheer for them. It's a great story, but we wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And after a lot of thought and just asking God, why are those two questions the way it is? I feel like the answer that he gave me is simple, that God is constantly inviting us and opening doors for us to be underdogs. And so when I look at that, two of my favorite underdogs in the Bible, first of all, David, you just heard about it. You know, he killed a giant. It was great, the story from a shepherd boy to killing a giant. The second one is Peter, Peter walking on water. You know, you're like, how's he an underdog? It was doing something that nobody expected him to do. He took a step of faith and had results of overcoming what nobody thought was possible. But, you know, I love those two underdogs. But the thing is, we love to talk about those and put, our, put ourselves in their shoes. But my worry is that's not who we are. We are actually the Israelites that are hiding in fear from Goliath. 
we are actually the other 11 disciples in the boats that are just, you know, comfortable where we're at. And, and my heart's desire is no, none of us ever be there, but that's who I want to speak to today because the fact of the matter is that's who we are when we look at the big picture. We're the disciples in the boat, and we are the Israelites hiding from Goliath. So that's who I want to speak to today, the real people that will say, yeah, that's really who I am. So when I look at underdogs, the first one I think about is the Cavaliers, 2017, playing against the Warriors, you know, not expected to win. Um, you know, nobody's like, hey, LeBron's, you know, he's going down, he's getting old. Um, Warriors are so good. They're being um, compared to the Jordan Bulls. Nobody expected them to win. But when I look at that picture, I was like, underdog, okay. I couldn't help but remember that before the series before they were playing Toronto and everybody wanted to crown LeBron the greatest player ever because he was dominating them. But then just a few days later, he steps and plays the Warriors and he's counted, oh, he's not as good like as MJ. He can't win. What happened? His identity didn't change. Who he was as a player didn't change, but his situation changed. So that's what an underdog is. It has nothing to do with your identity, but it has all to do with what situation you're in. And so looking at that, what does that mean? The Cavaliers needed something more than what was in their identity to win. That came in the way of a Clay Thompson injury and a Draymond Green suspension. So when we look at that in our spiritual life, what needs us from our ability to get where God's promised us? That's faith. And what an underdog is, all it does is just come down to faith. When we look in Hebrews, when we look at faith, Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God. You know, that's what we're called to do, give glory to God and please him. But we have no faith. We can't do that. God's called us to live a life of faith. So that's why he's called us and inviting us to be an underdog. See, a simple question I know is like, what is faith? You know, it's this magical thing. I don't know how to explain it. But when faith is, faith is measured by feet, not feelings. So we can think as much, oh, I believe it's going to happen. But Faith is not measured by feelings. It's measured by feet. So a simple question to ask today, is my faith working? What have I accomplished in my life that's in the will of God that I have needed God to help with? If you haven't done that, I, I'm sorry, but I question if our faith is working, if we've just done the expected things in our life that people have expected out of us, that we've expected out of ourselves when we really didn't need God, then is our faith really working? We have not measured our feet because our faith, we don't have nothing to measure because we have expected our feats to be accomplished. Something else when I think of faith is we enjoy the result of faith but don't like the step of faith because the step of faith is very um, uncertain. It's very uncertain because we don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't know the surrounding things. We don't have control. You see, it would be really easy to be David and just stay in the shepherd field where we have control. We know what to do. It'd be very easy to stay in the boat with the other disciples because we have control. The uncertainty of faith will hinder you from what God's promised for you. See, when we walk in faith, faith gives glory to God. And that's why God loves underdogs so much, not to make us successful and make us feel good about ourselves. Because he gets glory because it's unexpected and we cannot boast in what we've done. So when I close tonight, and we're going to spend one more time in worship, Anthony, if you could come up. I want to close out this Sunday with, when we give glory to God because of that faith that's in our heart, you know, it's been heavy on my heart. That this is not about the success of us when we talked about these powerful stories, but it's about that faith in giving glory to God. And 
the word that came with underdog is unexpected. You know, my heart and desire for the student ministry, we kind of used a bunch of students today, and I've been so proud of them, is my heart is not for them to live expected lives. You know, at, at my wedding, one of my vows wasn't, Pastor Chad and Miss Tasha probably thought like, oh, Lord, what am I getting Mariah into? But I vowed for Mariah to have a dangerous marriage. All that meant was, hey, we were going to do something unexpected. It wasn't going to be something that we could line up, that we could easily follow, but it was going to be something that God desired in our lives. And my biggest fear in life, and I, 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 I struggle with this every day, that if I just lived a life that was expected. And that's, that's what we do. We live a life of expect, that is just expected, either in our hearts of what we've learned or of what family members have expected out of us. But is that really what life's about? Is that really what it is, just to come to this service, just to, you know, have a family dinner once a week, just to go to a sports game and do this cycle over and over? Is that, is that if that's it, I've read most of the Bible, and I promise the Christian life's a little more than that. And we've, in our culture, cultivated this thing of it's just expected to do what we're called to do in this life of Christianity. But I challenge you today not to condemn you of us being the Israelites or the disciples in the boats, but more to say, hey, there's more. There's more, guys. God has more in your life, and I don't want you to miss it. Because nobody likes regret. Nobody wants to ask that question. Is that all life's about? Because the beauty, the beauty of standing on top of a giant you just killed, the beauty of destroying an army that's ten times your size, the beauty of floating on top of water when you build an ark that nobody expected. So as everybody could stand, we're going to close this service out in prayer. I really just want you guys to ask yourself, am I living the expected life? Because God's called us to more. If you're expected to be in a life group, how about you lead a life group? If you're expected to be on a serve team, how about lead a serve team? If you're expected to give 10, how about give 50? Because God flourishes in your faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, today, thank you so much for the faith that rose up in every person's heart on this stage. Lord, thank you for the beauty of you showing off, Lord, in every student here, in every other speaker here. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would not miss a moment, Lord, of being and going through the motion of an expected life, but we would step out in faith. We would believe that you've called us for more, that you have raised us up for more. You have called us royal priesthood. You have, in Romans, called us more than conquerors, Lord. Lord, and we would not live that in that life of questioning. Is this what I expected? Is this all there is to the Christian life? Because, man, there's more. There's got to be more than this. And we serve a God that there's always more. It never runs out. So I pray, Lord, that we would, every single one of us, ask our question when we close out in this last song. Lord, am I living that expected life? 
Lord, and reveal to me what is more. Lord, reveal to me what you have called me to do. Lord, reveal to me what step of faith I need to take, Lord, to give you all the glory in my whole life. Lord, I pray you would shake our hearts, Lord. I pray you would get us out of the routine. Get us out of the religion. And let us step into what you have. Let us step in becoming from an underdog that you've always called us to be because you get the glory and it always challenges us to rely on you. Lord, let us rely on you and shake our hearts today, Jesus. Don't let this just be another service. We worship you and we praise you. Amen. So clean my hands, purify my heart. I want to burn for you, only for you. Take my life as a sacrifice. I want to burn for you, only for you. Clean my hands. Clean my hands. Burn me lovely, burn me righteous, burn me holy. 
Father, that is our prayer today right now. As we go through the trials, as we are tried by fire, God, you bring us out on the other side as overcomers. As we're placed in situations where we can't do it on our own, God, you are given the glory, God, and we just pray for that right for pray for that right now for every person in this room. And we thank you for this service. We thank you for our communicators and every person in this room. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me slash give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.